0: Yeah, I'm just going to paraphrase H.L. Mencken here, who once said, uh, you know, for every complex problem, there's a simple intuitive solution that is wrong. And, and beware of people uh, coming at you with extraordinarily simple solutions for extraordinary complex problems. And I think it's, it's worth keeping that in mind. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch.
1: Hey, this is Mobson and with Drew and Alex. Alex, who do
2: we have today? We got a, a pretty cool episode. We got three guests. Our first time doing more than one guest. Menage a trois. All researchers. Um, we got Lieutenant Colonel Ben Hando. He's a physical therapist and clinical researcher for the Air Force. He recently served as the research flight commander at the Special Warfare Training Wing and is currently a research fellow with Kennel & Associates. He serves on a bunch of panels, Air Force and joint level. He's an orthopedic physical therapy specialist. We also have Dr. Sid Angadi. He's an assistant professor at the University of Virginia in the Department of Kinesiology and a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine. Uh, By training, he's a cardiovascular physiologist. His research focuses on the use of exercise to improve outcomes in patients in a wide variety of cases, everything from Patients with cancer undergoing chemotherapy to patients with heart disease or kidney disease, and finally we have Dr. Kason Scott, who is a senior data scientist with NCCI. Uh, he's got a background working as a research and data analyst both with the Air Force's Special Warfare Human Performance Squadron and with the Army's First Special Forces Group. And I'll hand it over to Drew to talk about the studies they did that got us interested in bringing them on.
1: Yeah, so the reason we had these guys come on really boils down to two two papers that we talk about. The first one is entitled the use of force plate vertical jump scans to identify special warfare trainees at risk for musculoskeletal injury. And the second study is titled association between markerless motion capture screenings and musculoskeletal injury risk for military trainees. And what was interesting about both of these is that if you look into the research, it's one of the, one of the few times where they have objectively looked at products that are commercially available for the human performance space and done some really thorough investigation as to whether or not the products in question, in this case, force plates and markerless motion captures, whether or not those things are doing what they are saying that they are doing. So in each one of these studies you're looking at, I mean, in the, in the vertical jump study, there's over 800 subjects. And in the markerless motion capture study, there's over 1,500 subjects, which is an insane amount of people to be involved in a study. And if you're unfamiliar with the Air Force Special Warfare Training Wing down in San Antonio, this course that they looked at is a hyper-controlled eight-week program where these airmen are essentially preparing for doc for Air Force Special Warfare. So you could probably not ask for a better environment to conduct this type of research on. Um, we won't spend too long diving into the papers necessarily because obviously that's what the episode is about. But I would encourage anybody that is interested to Google both of those titles. Again, it's the Vertical Jump Study and the Markerless Motion Capture Study. The papers read very, very easily. It's not your traditional peer-reviewed kind of jargon. It, they're very easy reads.
2: And the findings were... Interesting to say the least. It it started some fights for sure. Uh, those of you who are in the in the LinkedIn tactical human performance space know that this was a little bit of a bloodbath when the fourth plate study came out. Lots of people on both sides with strong opinions.
1: And I don't think. I mean, I don't know. You you might have your own opinion. I don't think we set out to do this to bash the uh, the companies and the products that were being researched. But I do think, and Sid dives into this in, in the interview, but. I think it's important that instead of just going out and spending capital and sort of accruing products without really giving it a good blush with research, I think this approach and the reason why we wanted to talk to these guys is because they did a really thorough job objectively of saying, is this worth it or not? And I think that's important because it's all too easy to sort of convince a commander or convince whoever's holding the purse strings to kind of buy the bright, shiny object. Um, and it's interesting to see what happens when you actually subject that to some some long-term research. Yeah, I
2: think you guys will like this one. It's pretty cool stuff.
1: Enjoy. Because I remember I texted Alex, or no, maybe I hit you up on LinkedIn when because you, po- you posted it and then just set fire to the <laughs> internet
2: and walked away. Yeah. The, the first text I got was that I like, I set up like a ring and threw some weapons in and then just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was not what I intended to do, but I don't know. I guess it was the right blend of industry slash academia, but.
3: Yeah. But I don't know. Send my, send my talk. Us off. Sid, are you okay with that? Are you ready to go for, no. go for blood?
0: <laughs> well, you know, the, the way I view it, you know, I'm an academic, obviously. And, um, I I think sunlight is the best disinfectant. And, uh, you know, uh, as long as we are not editorializing, but we're talking about the data as they are and uh, what's going on, it is what it is. And if it turns out that this is truly a non-functional product, then, uh, you know, call a spade a spade and just move on. Um, The way I view it is that to not uh, say things uh, that are critical of these vendors is also sort of a disservice to you know the operators the taxpayers and everyone else so um you know we don't have to call them names but at the same time i think we can be explicit in in what we found and go from there fair enough
1: that brings a happy tear to my eye as a government <laughs> employee <laughs> are you guys are you guys familiar with h2f No, not really. So, I guess for Sid's clarity, so Alex, Alex works on the um, the tradoc side of the army, and then I'm on the force com side of the army. But both of us are involved with this holistic health and fitness project that they have going on. It's similar to what you would have seen down at Special Warfare Prep in the sense that, like, the goal is to embed human performance in the conventional military. So Alex's background being active duty, I think you guys probably touched on that already. And then my background first is a strength and conditioning coach, and then now in the program director role on the special operations side, and then now with with H two F. So like I said, seeing this and thinking back to some of the conversations I had on sort of the, the consumer end, it was um, I think to Sid's point, it was it was lovely to see somebody <laughs> show the actual data.
3: Yeah, that's great. Well, where are you where are you working now specifically, Drew?
1: so I'm at Fort Bragg. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm out in uh, whispering Ponds, If you're familiar right near Pinehurst. Um, and then Alex is up at Fort Eustis. Sorry. I keep, I keep talking for you, Alex. It's my fault. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I introduced myself like semi-sarcastically, but mostly honestly, I'm the at the headquarters of H2F. I am the unqualified person. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I work with like several PhDs. Most people have like at least a master's degree. I've got a bachelor's in international relations. Um, I was an intelligence officer for my whole active duty time and like stumbled my way into teaching the master fitness trainer course for the army and found out that this stuff is really cool and I really like it. And so at the end of that two-year assignment, I couldn't really stomach going back into skiffs and doing intel. So I'm I'm working on a career pivot here into I guess holistic health and fitness, but more broadly, human performance stuff.
1: Well, what he totally glossed over was that as part of that, he started the Instagram Mops and Mo's and it caught on like wildfire in H2F because H2F is only about a year old in the Army. So he has really become the mouthpiece for it, for better or for
2: worse. And- I try to make sure that people remember that I am not the official mouthpiece and all of that stuff is not my actual job. I do do work sometimes, but. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It has, it's, it's where a lot of the coaches have ended up. Um, I, I initially started it trying to like connect with soldiers mostly and get like basic human performance information to soldiers. Cause I felt like that was something the army wasn't doing terribly effectively. Um, we're just kind of hurting ourselves a lot. Um, so just trying to get those basic messages out and I got, I have a decent soldier following, but it's, it seemed to have resonated much more with professionals in the space. Um, just naturally because they care about it more and they're more involved in it so there's there's a solid following of like physical therapists occupational therapists dietitians strength coaches athletic trainers so awesome but I'll, i'll circle back to the you guys's work and i
1: suppose the what led you down what led you to each of these both of these studies like what inspired you guys to go after the idea of using tech as an injury prevention tool?
3: Well, um, I guess I'll start with the, um, w- you know, we uh, you have to look at what you have. So we had, um, we stood up a human performance unit in special warfare in 2018, it started. Um, and the uh, operators there and the staff there started to stock the program with um, all kinds of equipment and tech, you know. So they they got a lot of wearable devices. They got um, Ready Bands to track sleep. They got Omega Wave to track readiness. They um, got a Dari uh, in place. They got a Sparta Force plates in place. They got um, what am I forgetting, Cason? They got Zephyr in place. Different from Zephyr to track load and to track these folks with heat injuries. And they did it all really fast. And, um, you know, we have this, uh, they created this preparatory course, um, because, you know, the, obviously you guys see this in the army as well. You know, we break these folks when we, um, when we train them to become operators. So there's this whole um, thought if we can, um, beef up our human performance presence and we can bring in all these experts like yourselves and, um, sports docs and physical therapists and athletic trainers and strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, dietitians, you know, all these folks, um, we can, you know, train smarter and harder, all those things that all branches are trying to do. But our, I think the unique thing at special warfare is that we have this prep course where they come in for eight weeks and we baseline all of these, um, candidates right when they get there. So we collect all this data on them before they start their training and then, um, it's just this really good controlled environment with, um, you know, a high, a high degree of, I guess you could say internal validity. So they all sleep in the same place, you know, in this controlled temperature, they eat roughly the same thing. They're almost this kind of like homogeneous population of, you know, 20 to 26 year old fit, um, young men. And, um, they're all exposed to very similar training and, um, uh, the research flight was, uh, I was asked to stand that up. And, you know, when, when I got there, it was like, they were collecting all this data and nobody really um, knew exactly what to do with it yet. And I mean, I don't say that disparagingly, it was just, it's a lot of data and there was some, a lot of decisions being made on this data, you know, like, Oh, this guy got this score on this motion capture system. Um, he has to go over here and um, train differently. And this guy scored this, this way on a force plate. And so, you know, he needs to go train this way and do these exercises, perhaps, or, you know, he's at um, risk, or this person scored this on their omega weight, you know, and um, we really didn't have any idea if any of this um, had any validity, if if, if any of this was, in fact, measuring what it said it purported to. So um, it was just kind of the low hanging fruit, like, hey, we need to get we need to figure out if if this stuff is um, giving us an ROI, return on our investment. And you know, when we, when the community kind of was like leaning forward and purchasing this stuff, that was part of the plan. You know, that was one of the reasons that we set up a a research um, organization was to really, you know, kind of investigate this stuff as we're collecting data. Uh, Sid has a good term for that. It's like, I think you could call it building the plane as you're flying it, Sid, you know, which, um, but, you know, sadly, as we started to look at some of this stuff, you know, like, like we've said, you know, it just hasn't, it hasn't panned out and it's probably shown that we've gotten like way out ahead of ourselves on some of these things. Um, but I don't know if that, or I don't know. If, and then Sid, maybe you can tell how, how we got connected with you, Sid, what, what you were doing.
0: Yeah. So, um, we, we sort of connected because, uh, you know, as I indicated previously, um, uh, I'm an academic, I'm a professor at the university of Virginia, but at the time I was consulting for Luke air force base and, uh, they were using, uh, the Dari at the time. And, um, uh, we started looking at it, and I remember thinking to myself, "This this seems odd because to do these movements and claim these things um, is is brave." And uh, and so I thought, well, okay, let's uh, let's start to test some of these things out. And and as it happened, one of my colleagues at Luke uh, happened to be at a conference with Ben, and they started talking. And uh, at the time, I was you know I just said, "Let's let's just get approval and." let's see if this device even is reproducible. Forget about whether it can predict anything. Let's just try testing these things out. So um, my colleague, Barry, uh, put me in touch with Ben. We started talking and I said, hey, you know, we've we've got these data and I I just don't see this device providing us with reproducible numbers. And I hear you've got a, a whole pile of people that are getting tested. I think there's some real synergy here because we can then see what's going on, and uh, and then we were off to the races. Really, it was just serendipity, but um, really, it just worked out.
2: Well, it, it sounds like we do have some pretty similar experiences since you're using the building the plane and flight phrase. That's uh, <laughs> that that might be like an unofficial motto for where we all work. Because <laughs> there's, I think, just in the whole across the board, whether you're conventional or soft or whatever it is, there's a lot of, we're, we're not quite sure what this is supposed to be. We're going to hire people and throw them into a situation and tell them to make it better. And there's a lot to figure out in terms of like what actual best practices are. And like, do we have enough outcome data to even decide what a best practice is? And there, there are a lot of challenges to this and everybody's got their own flavor to it. So it's really interesting to see how this whole space is evolving so quickly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you guys find, because I I mean, I've sort of always said this tongue in cheek, but it's a lot easier to buy something than it is to then test it and validate it. And I mean, these are just two examples of, of the devices that you guys were looking at. But have you seen, and especially Ben, being, being involved on the military side, have you seen this happen more frequently than not, where things tend to just be purchased because it's the shiny object? And there's not really that much work done after the fact to validate everything
3: yeah well you know i'm a physical therapist by training so i came from the medical you know i was a clinical researcher and in you know when you're dealing with healthcare and medicine it's um i think sometimes there's a higher bar um i think coming into special warfare into this almost uh you know it is a line unit um it's just a different mentality and you know um like you guys alluded to the culture is a little bit different it's um you know let's we have we have these folks are used to moving and making quick decisions and I think that carries over into their some of their human performance into the human performance realm so I think um I have seen it not to the extent that I've seen it where where I currently work um and uh I don't think that approach is necessarily a bad thing I think you know the good thing about it is I think they've said you know let's we, we are going to purchase these things but before we implement widespread widespread implementation i think they did do their due diligence say hey let's um, let's set up a uh, let's set up the means where we can test this stuff you know and we can um you know good on them you know they hired this robust research team and they you know gave me folks like caseen here and epidemiologists and statisticians and researchers and exercise physiologists to see, see what this stuff is doing. And, you know, they want to know the answers. So, um, but to answer your question, um, sure. It happens, you know, I think it probably happens in every industry. Um, I think injury prevention is a unique animal though. Um, you know, I think it's this perfect, um, not to monopolize this, but it's this perfect mix of it's this huge problem, you know, and it's everybody recognizes it's a huge problem that hasn't been solved yet. And, you know, it's causing so much, um, problems and we don't know exactly how to fix it. So it's just this like perfect situation where everybody's like so hungry for a solution that I think people start to reach a little bit.
1: Yeah. No, I think, I think both of us see that. And I suppose for the benefit of the people that are actually listening to this, can we, cause I've got in front of me, the two papers that you guys wrote, the first one being for the markerless motion capture device, and then the other one being for the force plate. Can you guys walk through just at sort of a high level, the design, the methods, the results of, of each one of those? And I know that they're publicly accessible and we'll make that known to everybody that kind of listens to this, but can we sort of walk through what both of these are going after and then dive into some of the, some of the findings?
3: Sure. Um, well, not to bore everyone, but you know these are both what you would call retrospective cohort studies. Oh, please
1: bore everyone.
3: <laughs> no, so I'll I'll do a little bit, and then I'll let Kason and Sid correct all my mistakes because I feel like I'm monopolizing this. But you know, essentially, you know, we take um, you know the first. If you think about like Van Meshen, he has this like uh, this um, kind of proved this uh, approach that most people agree to with injury prevention, and you know you establish. Um, incidence and prevalence rates, and then you identify causative factors, and then you go out there and you try to um, identify things that can prevent um, a condition, and then you implement it um, on a wide scale. So, you know, for us, the first thing we want to do is establish, you know, just baseline incidence rates, and we've done a little bit of that, but the second part is really what both of these studies were, and that's just identifying factors that are related to injuries. So, you know, are there factors that might help identify somebody um, that's likely to get injured? And um, so, you know, we take a large cohort of people and we look at their baseline, their baseline measures, whether it's a DARI score or whether it was the force plate Sparta score. And then we use um, some statistical techniques. We use logistic regression in both of these um, to identify factors that were shown to have an associate to, to determine if these but either of these instruments had an association with the likelihood of injury. Um, so we did that. Um, and a univariate model, meaning that we looked at like each individual variable, like is, you know, does the overall vulnerability score of the DARI, you know, by itself, is that associated with injury? And then we did what's called a multivariable model, where, which is really the more rigorous and the more appropriate way to really draw conclusions. And that is, you know, is it still related to injury when you factor in all these other factors? Like prior injury, like age, like BMI, um, fitness tests and things like that. And so, you know, the good thing about these multivariable models is that they can control for those other factors statistically when you, when you ask this question. And so, um, you know, it's really the way that, um, these factors will interact with injury risk in real life, you know? So, um, we think it's a pretty rigorous way to, to try to answer this question, um, answer these questions. But um, you know, that's the general. That, you know, we had the same approach in both studies. This kind of retrospective cohort study using logistic regression to see if either of these um, tools was associated with injury risk. Um, Sid or Kason, what do you, what else do you think you could add to that? Yeah, what
0: I, yeah, what I was going to say um, is that. You know, there's, there's multiple aspects and uh, things to consider because, like Ben described, you run the logistic regression, you run it on multivariate model, and gives you things like odds ratios. But from a clinical perspective, and, you know, I've been a clinical trialist now for over a decade, uh, the other question becomes is that what is the clinical utility of these tests? What can they really, uh, what ad- additive information can they provide? And so we ran analyses like the receiver operating curve uh, analyses. And what that really allows us to do is really question the sensitivity, or rather probe for the sensitivity and specificity of these tests. Because at the end of the day, what you really want is a test that doesn't have too many false positives, doesn't have too many false negatives, and has a high percentage of true negatives and true positives, and the way you probe that is by examining the sensitivity, specificity, and so on. And and, uh, those are the figures that you see. And uh, what we discovered in both both of these analyses, whether it was the DARI or the SPARTA score, was that you ended up getting numbers which effectively were not that different from a coin flip. And uh, that is the worst form of prediction. uh, to, to put in mildly. And so, um, that was really the issue. And, and the big part of why we did that was because when you have these large sample-based studies, even tiny differences, you, you run into the risk of running, you know, finding statistically significant outcomes. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that something actually works, but it's rather because just the law of big numbers, when you have a large enough sample, things start popping up as statistically significant that are completely clinically irrelevant and so that really allowed us to ask the question, well, we're, we're, we're finding the things that we're finding, but do these clinically matter? Do they change decision-making? Will they change the approach to managing the patient or the individual? And turns out the answer is not really.
2: I think to, to echo something that you guys discussed in the papers, but you haven't said here quite yet, is, and this goes back to Ben's point about like multivariate analysis, is It's only valuable if it's additive in some way so if you start to control for all the information you already are going to have access to anyway like their pt scores like their body weight like their age like all that stuff that we can make decisions on without collecting any additional information that's what gets you closer to a decision of whether it's clinically relevant i think because if we can if we can come up with a pretty good protocol for what your needs are just based on your mile and a half run time and your body mass index and your injury history well we already had those things and so like finding out how much it adds is important
0: and they're inexpensive
1: (laughs) do you guys find so i think we see this a lot in human performance where again we talked about the bright shiny object and it's it's very easy to sell and be sold but outside of this space i mean i can't imagine in sort of a in a in a medical model you would see this type of thing i could be wrong, but. I would imagine a lot of this happens before the fact, before the sort of client-vendor relationship. Is that, am I off there? Or, or do you guys think this is sort of specific
0: to this industry? I, I, can, I can sort of address that, but Ben feel free to jump oh, in as well. Ahead, um, but you know, having been in the medical space, I can tell you um, it's really hard to, to make false claims out there because things are extraordinarily tightly regulated especially in in certain areas. And what I mean by that is so by training I'm a cardiovascular physiologist, done a lot of work in risk prediction in in, uh, heart disease, heart failure, and uh, end-stage renal disease. And um, you have to be very careful with how you describe the tests you perform and what you can or cannot derive from them. Um, You know, the FDA gets involved really quickly if you start making, you know, problematic statements. But on the other hand, what I have definitely observed is in this space, um, there is a lot of flash, but uh, not a lot of substance behind it. You know, a lot of due diligence that would need to be done. I mean, let's just think about simple uh, stuff that we do um, in, in the cardiovascular space, for instance, like the Framingham risk score. That is the product of decades of research, decades. And that model is used, um, uh, you know, frequently, almost every day and every you know, for risk stratification in patients. But then you look at this space and you, you see these people making incredible claims, like, you know, it's a, it's a vital sign for movement. You know, call something a vital sign. that you know, There's, there's got to be some heft behind it. Um, and so what I've definitely seen is that there's a lot of stuff that is said, which maybe does not have as rigorous a background as it would be as compared to what happens in medicine. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that brings up something I noted when I, when I was going through this and something I've encountered a lot as, again, being on sort of the consumer end of this is, and I think both of these products do this, but it's proprietary algorithms versus sort of generic algorithms. And I think we've all seen, we don't need to name names, but every just about every wearable I can think of and every device I can think of sort of sells the practitioner on this proprietary black box metric call it a stress score or a wellness score or a daily this or that and i've seen i think we've all seen at the level of the athlete behaviors change when they see those things and then when you tease the you know you tease the product and ask what goes into these algorithms a lot of the times they won't they won't tell you so did you guys find that i suppose the question here is is was a bigger issue that you guys found the idea that these proprietary algorithms were giving off something that wasn't true or was it the underlying mechanism of the thing itself, if that makes sense?
3: Well, I want to say something about like that, and then I want Case in to comment on this. But um, yeah, I mean, well, first off, um, you know, they have, you know, the first baseline thing is you have to even show that you have any association with injury risk. You know what I mean? That's like, and that's a very low bar to clear that they haven't even cleared yet. But then, um, you know, after you... You finish that you know you do need some sort of oh some causative factor that you can address i mean that's the idea right that this is going to be a a modifiable risk factor that you can go in there and um and train to you know where um and so casey maybe you can we, we we did try to crack the code a little bit on the sparta the force plate study that we did casey maybe you could talk a little bit about that
4: yeah sure so um yeah, as, as we kind of, and I guess I should say, we, we did quite a bit of work behind the scenes is in, um, really given this data, like the best chance to, to be worth something. So, um, with the Dari study, we, we spent a lot of time doing, um, like really high dimensional analyses, uh, of some of the, um, data, like using, uh, principal component analysis and different machine learning algorithms, like really trying, like giving it a shot, really trying to, to detect some signal in, in, in the injury data, but but had no luck. Um, but I guess specifically with the, uh, when we started looking into the Sparta data, that was a, a bit more straightforward to, to kind of tease apart. So um, we, Anyone could do this really um, if you just start plotting out the data and look at the the relationship between the sparta score and just your jump height and your body weight, um, you'll quickly see that the majority of the score is just your jump height um, for the sparta score. If you look at the uh, the MSK health score, which is um, their injury risk um, score, that uh, that's over half. So that's, that's getting close. Like sixty percent of that score is is, is simple, simply your vertical jump height and your body weight. And so um, that was really interesting because th- we actually observed a negative relationship between jump height and injury risk. Um, so, <clears throat> so it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, I was going to say.
0: It, it came about because of just a, a random conversation we had one day, but case, and you can tell the story.
2: <laughs> that was one of the more surprising yeah. findings in the paper, like the, the mile and a half run time correlation with injury, not that surprising. Some of the muscular endurance stuff, not that surprising. I was surprised to see that jump height was not predictive but, or inversely.
4: Yeah. Well, and, and this is like something that we were quite concerned about because, um, so basically that, that model. So like, if you think of the MSK health score as a model for, for getting injured, uh, it's telling us that the, the higher you jump, the, the more likely you are to get injured. And so just think about like, if you take any give any guy and, and put him on, uh, on a jump scan and if he's banked up and he jumps a lower height for that particular day, uh, the machine's actually gonna tell him that he's less likely to get injured and like, hey, like you're good to go. And, uh, and, and so that's like, that's something we got concerned about pretty quickly. And in, uh, in that like, not only are you giving like, like Sid mentioned like random advice, like a coin flip, but this is actually detrimental. Like this is bad advice. This is uh, like telling them to figure it out on their own is probably more helpful than, than, than the advice you would be giving them based on this number. Uh, and then to verify it, we, uh, took everyone in the gym and, and did a little study where, um, took 12, 12 guys, um, did a series of jumps and then did a series of jumps where you sandbag the effort to try to jump roughly half as high. And sure enough, all of us our uh, injury risk score, uh, came way down. and So, uh, we became much less likely to get injured by just Uh, sandbag in our jumping attempt and so um, yeah it's just like kind of ridiculous that
1: um... I mean that's because you I mean everybody sort of knows that previous injury is indicative of future injury so I'm thinking like if I have a guy maybe this is an extreme example but if a guy comes in with a cast on his leg and can't jump as high (laughs) and he's being told that he's Less likely to get injured while he's actually injured. If we just blindly follow what's on the screen, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's probably not the best situation.
4: <laughs> no,
3: man, yeah.
0: No, and it, it it's not basically man. exposes the fact that it's it's a score that's fairly easy to game, and mm-hmm. that's the danger with having these black box systems where you don't know all the inputs that are going into your model, and then when you start Teasing these things apart and you recognize that, you know, the, the the downside of this is someone that is, you know, unfit and should not be say deployed or sent somewhere, if they just bag their effort and get a better score, you could you could make a potentially dangerous decision about them based on that. And that's problematic. Did you guys find, just
1: because of the duration of the study, did you guys find or did you see where? the athletes realized the, the game, so to speak, and were able to bag it? Or did you guys keep that totally hidden from them?
3: We kept it hidden from, well, we didn't keep it hidden, but we didn't see that, you know, we, um, you know, we had a, um, you know, there's a ton of subjects in both these studies in the Dari one, we had over 1500 subjects and in the force plate one, we had over 800 subjects. And these folks are taking their scores, you know, at baseline when they, when they come in and then they take them again at the end, um, and in the case of the force plate one they would take them again mid and then at their right before they would leave so um we would go there for a lot for for baseline testing to watch the testing but um we didn't have the kind of close relationship with the with the students that a lot of the coaches did you know um a lot of our coaches uh did find value in in both some of these some of these tests that they did you know uh talking to them though it's interesting you know it's um I don't know if it's ever just you know just the scores. It's um, you know the scores combined with a lot of their expertise and um, you know working individually, they'll have anecdotes of working individually with uh, with the trainee that they'll find something something useful from it. But just one thing, just before we get off that last topic, you know, injury. The thing that gets me some sometimes about some of these companies is just almost the um, you know the things that we're talking about, like you know, return to play after an injury. I mean, there is, um, you know, the, the research is littered with failed um, studies looking at this. These are really hard questions to answer. I mean, just return to sport. If you just go on PubMed and look at, you know, how do you return somebody to sport after an ACL tear? I mean, even that, like that specific question, nobody's really cracked their code on that. There's, all, you know, all kinds of varying opinions and predicting injuries. My gosh, that's even harder. I mean, there's just been um, 30 years of research into this. Um, It's really complicated. And, you know, there's some people that think that we should just stop trying to predict injury altogether. It's a, it's a fool's game. You know, let's find out maybe what prevents injury and let's give everyone that intervention. And along the way, we're going to probably improve performance as well, you know, but I don't know where I fall on it. So, I mean, I'm still agnostic, but I just think when you think about it in those terms, then you think that, man, some of these companies that haven't really paid any kind of, do's so to speak in terms of research or data come in and they're just like um ready to implement and um have these things used on a mass scale throughout the department of defense and they're lobbying congress and they're in the ndaa and um you know it it's um it's really remarkable your your comment
2: about the coaches gets after something i'm curious about and there's, there's something I say often, because I think it deserves to be addressed, which is that data itself doesn't do anything. Um, data is something people can make decisions based off of. And I, I don't think a takeaway from this is necessarily that these tools don't have value, right? Force plates have been around for a long time, and they produce data that people can make decisions with. But it's, it's the case that just like a single algorithm can interpret a single data point and make all the decisions you need that I think is is astonishingly aggressive, right? Yeah. These, these tools do have use cases and like people with the right expertise can make decisions on them, but that's tough because we don't have enough of those people to, to just like implement these solutions everywhere. And our, our leaders are certainly seeking after, for good reason, really simple solutions. And you kind of addressed it at the end of that there, that there, there just might not be a very simple, single factor answer to this question.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to paraphrase H.L. Mencken here, who once said, uh, "You know, for every complex problem, there's a simple, intuitive solution that is wrong." Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and beware of people uh, coming at you with extraordinarily simple solutions for extraordinary complex problems. And I think it's it's worth keeping that in mind. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm-hmm. Well, I think
1: too, like I've seen this, my whole career has been with military humor performance, but I I have seen this as well in the sort of collegiate professional space. There's this constant push for mechanizing the human element of things. Um, I think in the military, it's even more so because leaders at sort of all levels are so used to dealing with the machine aspect of going to war tanks, jets, vehicles, mm-hmm. checklist, you know, XYZ is taken care of, we're good to go. And I've seen that on the human element, as we've built out these embedded performance teams, because they want the easy solution. And generally it is sold off the back of some wearable or some device that presents charts and graphs that look a lot like what you might get when you're doing maintenance on a Humvee. And yeah I kind of, we have tried so hard I really don't know why that is. I think that the whole idea behind human performance, you can go back and forth between the biopsychosocial piece versus the traditional mechanistic piece. And I think a lot of these devices and platforms and software live in this space of fantasizing about the human element as very containable and very one plus one equals two. And everybody coming from sort of a physiology background or a medical background realizes that it's a systems approach. And you can never capture that with a single algorithm or a single movement. Um, that's not really a question. It's more of a thought that I throw out to you guys, because we've seen this happen time and time again, where leaders far removed from the, the training space make decisions mechanistically. Whereas those of us that are down in the trenches, so to speak, have to deal with the human element. And if you aren't aware of the fact that, to Alex's point, data just tells a story, it doesn't make a decision. And you're, you're sort of doing an injustice. That's me off my soapbox.
3: No, well said. I, I think that was really that's really interesting. I've never thought of it like that, but I think that's I think that's a great comment. I like how you said about there about maybe it's appealing to folks um looking at this from a from a mechanical point of view or like a like a maintenance report. I like that. I mean, I think there's probably there's probably a lot of truth in it.
1: Working with the Air Force and now with the Army, I mean, you and this is no fault to any of the the leaders necessarily, but when they're presented so much information about everything in yeah. their purview, they will literally tell you, we want, we want red, yellow, and green. Like we want the human yeah. element contained in red, yellow, and green. And I think that there's goodness in that from sort of a briefing standpoint, but then when you go to actually try to do that, like, you know, if, if we use a jump platform as an example, you could easily have a bunch of guys jump and and red, yellow, and green the whole thing. And your reds go and do this your yellows do that. But I think to sort of Ben's point about injury prediction and and what does that look like? I don't think we've even gotten close to cracking the nut in so long as we continue to think of human beings as Humvees or jets or, you know, enter your vehicle choice.
3: Yeah. And this is just a feedback. I want to, you know, the thing that struck me when we were doing, you know, when I got there and we were collecting all this data is just, and I don't know if you all feel this um, in your roles, but it's just, the time that it takes to do this, you know, um, I mean, not to get um, Pollyannish, but, you know, the the great thing that like most people think the thing that makes the U.S. military like the number one fighting force in the history of the planet is our training. I mean, it is our training is so important. You know, that's what everyone says about, you know, pilot training, for example, you know, it's not necessarily our technology. Oh, that's part of it. And then when you take all this stuff and you like take these folks out of training to do all this stuff, like, you know, to take all these measurements. I mean, man, you better be sure that it's like, it's worth it, you know, because they're going to need that training when they get, when they get down range. And um, it's just a solemn responsibility. I think it's sometimes I, I worry that we lose track of that when um, we're spending all, all this time playing with gadgets, you know, we've talked before here about the fact
2: that service members are sometimes treated like guinea pigs because they're a, they're a great population to do research on or to try out your new protocol on. And there's, there's offices across the DOD trying to crack the nut on a variety of problems. So service members end up taking like 30 questionnaires and they're not sure what each of these questionnaires are for and they're not sure who's making decisions with it or why and how it's supposed to help them at the end of the day. And you just get survey fatigue or assessment fatigue And I think they're, like you said about the solemn responsibility, I think we need to do a better job triaging what gets blasted out to service members everywhere when we, when we aren't quite sure the validity of the tool, whether it's, whether it's a device tool or just a survey tool or whatever it is. Like, I I do think there's a serious responsibility to make sure we're not just throwing things at service members and then finding out later that we kind of wasted their time.
3: Yeah, well, I think it's a problem everywhere. Like Sid, you've talked about that. This is happening in collegiate sports as well, right, Sid? Yep, pretty much.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it's it's the human performance side, right? And especially it's the elite human performance side, where people are trying to shave that extra second off, or uh, in, you know, marginally improve the lethality of an operator. And and that's really where a lot of these uh, vendors appear to operate in. Where they make uh, all these claims, and uh, and a lot of times, I think I, I have to say what I was struck by is that it's clear that the armed forces and the DoD has fantastic tools at their disposal, like people like Ben and Kaysen. <laughs> um, but what what is also striking is um, how they're not often relied upon to provide expert insight prior to. Major decisions like this being made uh, in terms of procurement or utilization. So, you know, that's one of these things that we're gonna to have to figure out.
1: Well, it brings up another, I, I know I I asked a variation of this question earlier, said to you specifically, but with your experience on the medical side, ha, would you say that they've moved moved past that or are they still hung up in that idea of move quick? And I know you touched on this a little bit, but I think it's worth repeating this idea of, because that's a that's a change in thinking, I think, for the military, where it's easy to move fast, spend money, buy the thing, and then, oh, wait, maybe it's not the best idea for,
0: you know, what we need. Yeah, um, I have to say, you know, see, um, uh, as a cardiovascular physiologist, I can tell you that most, a big reason why we're so deliberate about the, the pace at which we move is because we have inadvertently done serious harm to people as a result. Um, I can give you several examples. It's just best example that jumps to my mind. Uh, many years ago, we knew that people that survived heart attacks got PVCs, premature ventricular contractions. And we knew that they are associated with increased risk of death. And so the chemical arrhythmia suppression trial, the CAST-1 trial was designed because there was a drug that could just completely suppress the PVCs. Um, one group got placebo. One group got the drug. Uh, people that got the drug uh, got a large suppression of PVCs, like over ninety percent of the PVCs were suppressed. Except they also died more because of the drug. Um, and so, what what has really happened over the history is, you know, the history of medicine is that we've realized that a lot of times bad decisions can be made because you're not thinking about the unknown unknowns. And and which is why we're so deliberate about the. You know the hierarchy of evidence. You know you you look at the epidemiological studies, which sort of are hypothesis generating, and then you you test those hypotheses in randomized control trials, and then you see if something is real or not. And the flip side of that is that it takes a lot of time. Um, in medicine, the typical you know pipeline time for a new therapeutic can be as long as thirteen years on average, which is a long time. So I can see why there's a desperate you know why? Why people think like you know that's just not going to work. We can't wait 13 years. But then you know on the flip side, you you then run into this issue where you start making bad decisions because you're working with not great information. And uh, and so yeah, that's that's sort of like the you know the both sides of it. Uh, the medical model works because it's it's incredibly rigorous and careful and thoughtful and deliberate. Uh, even these mRNA vaccines that came out for COVID, they're built on the backbone of 20 years of research, like the original papers on this were published in the mid nineties. But then it it takes time. Uh, But I think that's something that people are going to have to realize is that human health is a complex system-wide phenomenon. Uh, And it's not just the physiology, it's, you know, the sociocultural context and all kinds of things that come into play. And um, to crack the nut in these things uh, means that you need to be careful, mindful of these things. And uh, because quite often it's like navigating a minefield. And if you if you take shortcuts, that's when you start getting in trouble.
1: Yeah, two things came to mind as you talked, especially about the 13-year average. And there's not necessarily a question here, but just a thought. Like, I, I almost wonder if the speed of technological advancement prevents prevents or scares people away from taking that long. Because if we put everything through a 13-year pipeline, even a two-year pipeline, by the time you came out the other end, I mean, I'm just thinking of, you know, heart rate monitors as an example. The the tech would be so far ahead of where you were two years ago. And then the other thing from a military-specific standpoint is a lot of the key decision makers are only in a position of influence for two or three years at most. And so to have somebody think of investing in something that's going to pay dividends you know, several several iterations down the road is, is sort of a hard pill I think for some people to swallow.
0: And that's that's a fair point. Uh, but you know, th- these things can't be hurried up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, if you think about heart rate monitors, right, uh, the reason they work is because um, a couple of hundred years ago, a guy stuck one foot in a, a water bath, another foot, uh, another uh, extremity had an electrical electrode, uh, sorry, an electrode attached to it. And that's how he came up with uh, the EKG. His name was Wilhelm Weintold. And that's how, uh, EKGs began. And then, you know, a couple of hundred years later, people thought, oh, you know what, you could just stick a strap on the chest, which is two electrodes, which detects the R wave. And that's how the polar heart rate monitor works. So, you know, a lot of this stuff that works actually has a long history of, of, testing and evaluation that really goes in. A lot of times people think, oh, you know, this this product went through development so quickly, that's great. But think of all that went behind it, right? That preceded it, that allowed for that development to occur. And that's sort of the, the, the thing to keep in mind.
2: Well, that's relevant and- to this conversation too, because I think a lot of people get the idea that because of some recent marketing and things like that, that, that force plates themselves are new. And- I think like this audience probably knows that that's, that's not the case. There's a long precedent of using force plates for research purposes and things like that. It's just the, the Holy grail injury prediction thing that's new and that's what makes the conversation tough. Right. I mean, my,
1: my, this is not uh, the question I have is, is it even possible to predict injury, which Ben, I know you sort of said you were agnostic on this, but it's people chase it so heavily because I think, in some make-believe world where you are able to crack that code, that makes for a heck of a brief to somebody somewhere who's very powerful. Hey, you know, have your have your people do these three things, and then I can tell you, within ninety-nine percent, whether or not they'll get injured. I mean, is that even possible?
3: Yeah, I don't know, and I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't venture to. Um, I mean, there's people a lot smarter than me that, like I said, have dedicated their whole um, professional career to that. Um, I do think it's worth sometimes us thinking about what it looks like at the end of this. Like if we do get to the point where we predict injury, I was at a, a conference recently and these guys had developed this. Um, they purported they had this machine learning algorithm to identify um, people that were likely to get a hamstring injury. And they said they had tested out on this um, athletic of uh, the collegiate athlete population. And um Of football players, and they said they could um, get us to the point where they were like 75% accurate of um, identifying who's going to suffer a hamstring injury, you know. Um, So um, I did ask them, I said, Well, okay, so how do you use this? And they said, Well, um, you know, on game day, we could um, see who's going to get, see who pops, um, who's at at risk, and then maybe we could um, use that information. We'll use it how? Are you going to? Um, Are you going to take that and go up to the coach and say, Hey, um, uh, I don't know, don't start Matt Stafford today because he's got a 75% increased risk of pulling his hamstring, you know, um, maybe, I I don't know. I I don't think I would, Um, you know, uh, I think the ideal situation is, you know, we say, Hey, this person um, has, you know, weak hip abductors. And if we strengthen their hip abductors, they're going to be much less likely um to get injured or this person has a, a you know a, a, a poor deadlift. so let's let's improve their deadlift and it's going to reduce their chances of suffering a, a lumbar spine injury. you know I think that's um, I think that's uh, a more feasible goal and I, I think that potentially a situation like that is um, is is within reach, you know, using kind of these inference based methods um, um, to identify these modifiable risk factors that you can then address but you know, like I said, sadly we're we're not there yet. But you know, those answering those types of questions, I don't think are as sexy as you know this like quick, um, you know, get this binary response, yes or no, um, you know, like pre- predicting the future kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I'm interested in what what you guys think, or um, Sid, what do you think? You think we're ever going to predict who's going to get injured? Um,
0: you know, one, I think it's a worthwhile pursuit to try and figure it out. Two, we're not closed. Three, um, I don't know, but the, the, you know my guess is even if we get better at it than we are right now, my, my suspicion is is that it's not going to look like what people think it looks like. And what I mean by that is that uh, it's not going to say, and you know Ben sort of alluded to this too, it's not going to be like, yeah, this person's going to have that injury three days from now or something like that. Because at the end of the day, these things are probabilistic. All that they can really say is that this is the probability of X happening. And based on that, if you have a robust enough model, which has meaningful inputs that go into it, that genuinely do have a causal relationship to the disease process that you're studying, then you can think about modifying those risk factors. All right. I mean, think about the Framingham risk score in cardiovascular disease. You know, you have age, you've got age, sex, family history, things you can't change. All right. And then you've got things like blood pressure, you know, cholesterol levels, and so on. Well, you can't change those. And, and so, you know, we know the causal relationship between those things and cardiovascular disease. And so, if you move the needle on that, you can make sure people have better, longer, healthier lives. And so, my suspicion is, if we get to that point where we have a better understanding of the causal factors, if we get better at generating these models that then start producing meaningful probabilistic inputs, we'll get to the point where now we know what are those things that are actionable that we could potentially move the needle on and hopefully change the trajectory for the person.
1: Well, as you guys are talking, I think of I almost wonder and my background is in strength and conditioning not in, in the medical space at all but I almost wonder if you rephrase it as performance potential as opposed to injury prediction because if I'm presented with a handful of data that doesn't necessarily say that this athlete's mm-hmm. going to get injured 3 days from now but instead says they're more likely to suffer you know from peak performance because of these things then I have tools that I can action on and and to the point about I think of Matt Stafford, if you tell me he has a 75% chance of tearing his hamstring and I decide to bench him, well, all that does is move the target. And now maybe he's more likely to sprain his ankle as he stands up from the bench. I mean, like, how do you how do you cage it? The the yeah. injury you're predicting is only as good as the tool and the muscle in the in the part of the body that it's looking at. You can't do a full body scan and cover every single injury. Um, I just picture Matt Stafford twisting his ankle as he stands up from the, the bench. <laughs>
3: Well, and you bring up a good point, and that's, you know, these are all these things, you know, risk happens, as Sid alluded to, on a continuous scale, you know, and it's probabilistic. And, you know, we're trying to look at this as like a, a binary yes or no answer, which is, you know, when do you, is it when they get to the 75% likelihood, is that equal a yes? But, you know, 74% is a no, you know, so there's, it's just a very complex question with, but um, with, it's, it's going to require nuanced answers, I think.
2: There's yeah. there's a challenge from my standpoint. And I've I've run this question with leaders in like a few military organizations, all conventional sides. So it could be very different in a soft world. But the the question of what are you actually going to do with this information if you had it and it was accurate. So we're, we're talking about modifiable risk factors. There are a lot of modifiable risk factors that we have ready access to that we already know about, and we don't really change what we do because of those. And I think there's like something as low-hanging as if I look at the Army's Doctrine for Fitness, it says that the fitness test should serve as a guide for you and your commander to adjust your training based on your scores. But if I ask every soldier, has anybody ever looked at your score with you and said, hey, based on this, this is how we should adjust what you're doing? The, the number of them that's going to say that they're changing anything anyway is almost none. So we can add all the technology we want. If people were unwilling to modify what they do based on the modifiable risk factors we already know about, we have a we have much more direct problems to go solve that are much more to do with leadership than injury prediction. And I think that's where a lot of this like cultural change conversation goes because even if it worked perfectly, I'm not convinced they would change what they're doing because of it necessarily.
1: Well, I think a hard truth is that the data really the data and the product are exist to exist to funnel information up. Like if I'm being sold a product as a vent, as a, as a practitioner, I'm thinking, how is this going to look good in, in a brief or, or something to a coach or a leader to Alex's point? I don't think it exists so much to push information down to the level of the athlete to make the behavioral change, because otherwise we would have solved for sleep. We would have solved for poor scheduling in the military. We would have solved for all of these things because like you said, the, the fruit is incredibly low hanging. Like it's so easy to, well, not so easy, but it's relatively easy to fix those things without the fancy tech and the spreadsheets and the charts and the graphs. Those exist to go up, I think.
4: And, and I would add that there's a, a serious like issue just in the technology sector in general, not just sports stuff, but so many companies are trying to convince people that machine learning and AI is magic. But... It's not one, but then also it's, they're selling you a model of that approximates some like a conceptual model that you already kind of have in your head. Right. So like with injuries, like you guys are smarter about injuries than I am, but you probably have an idea already in your mind about what contributes to your own risk for getting an injury. If you go out for a jog right now. So how, how could just some special algorithm just turn that into a yes or no definitive answer? Like, like, if you go back to like the first principles of an injury and then like, but we're jumping from that all the way to a yes, no answer. And then uh, these tech companies are trying to convince you, hey, like just believe it, like believe the answer. Uh, machine learning is taking care of that and, and, and they're not being held accountable for that jump in logic that's gigantic. Uh, if it's a, I was going to say I wonder how
1: the sales pitch changes if it becomes illegal to say machine learning and or the word algorithm.
0: Well, I I think the you know uh, case nailed it just and, and um all I was really just going to add is that when you think about these vendors and these companies that make these claims, I think there's something to be said for the the incentive structure that allows for these things to happen, right? The biggest, boldest claim gets money from the VCs and so on and so forth. And that's how you end up with things like Theranos, for instance, right? Um, and, And so that's part of the problem. And I think it's important to understand that I'm not saying that the people that work there are necessarily bad people but there is an incentive structure in place that encourages these sorts of claims. Because without these claims, my guess is, you know, if you just said and went to a fundraiser meeting and said, you know, we have some ideas about injury prediction, we think we're gonna apply these things, we don't know where it's gonna go, but I think it's an important direction for us to be and in about 20 years we'll crack the nut. Nobody's gonna give you a penny. On the other hand, you come back and say uh, something fairly outrageous, like, you know, we got this figured out, we got this one number, it's going to predict the risk of X happening. Um, and, and suddenly you got like, you know, people, uh, you know, saying just shut up and take my money. So that that is sort of a, a, an issue there.
2: Yeah. I think we have this conversation at work all the time. I think we even had it today, but I think part of the the hype around tactical strength and conditioning and tactical human performance is because of those incentive structures and just where the money is and where the decision makers are. And just like how many of these modifiable risk factors could we address with better K through 12 physical education and health education? But there's no incentive structure around that. And so it's, it's actively decaying and getting worse when that is probably our single most effective intervention we could be taking to produce a population and therefore service members that were more resilient against injury, but.
3: Well, there is, and I mean, I don't know how much more time we have, but I'd be interested in both your and Drew's take on this and this. So in um, Kaysen like articulated this really well to me one day, I think we were like actually watching the um, folks do the force plate testing at special warfare. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we have a, a ton of coaches there, but uh, one of the coaches was um, really, um, enthusiastic about the force plate testing. And he was really, um, like, uh, you know, expressing that to Kason and I, and when he left, you know, Kason said to me, it's, I think you said like, it's just, I don't say there's something sad about it, but just that, you know, we're much more interested in what a squared away coach thinks of, of, uh, um, a candidate and, and how they're doing and all that insight that you all have and all your training and, you know, um, that's much more, I think, valuable to this organization than what this, um, you know, I think you guys probably know where I'm going, what this what this black box algorithm is, is going to tell us. And sometimes I almost worry that the strength and conditioning field is um, not that they're um, creating their own demise, but like a little bit of that, just a, just a tiny <laughs> bit of that, just a, a bit of like, guys like I, I'm and gals I'm much more interested in what you have to say than this machine um you know Casey, did, did I did I butcher that or is that kind of the sentiment you were expressing
4: yeah no that's how I felt because yeah the, the coach that we were chatting with um yeah he's like a really interesting guy and and a smart guy and I was like man like I like data but like I'm not going to listen to this machine like uh like I want to listen to this guy that's looked at athletes for 20 years and, and had, um, boots on the ground trying to fix problems like on a person by person basis. I don't, I don't care if my score is 85 out of 100. I mean, I can, I will do my best not to get on a
1: soapbox here. And Alex knows I'm very capable of it, especially from a strength and conditioning standpoint, talking about artificial intelligence, um, you know, machine learning and the, how it relates to the athlete. Like, I think especially with the rollout of these programs in the military, we're we're starting to hopefully see a blank canvas of thought in terms of how we deal with athletes, how we train athletes, because for the first time, really since I can think of in strength and conditioning coaches are being exposed to a new population. It's not rinse and repeat from college football or basketball or some other sport where best practices sort of already exist and you, you sort of function within that. But I think now with the tactical space, At least what we kind of the reason we put this podcast together in the first place and what we've sort of tried to tease out is that human element of it because of a lack of resourcing, because of a lack of time for a lot of these coaches, they have to invest a lot more of themselves into getting to know the athletes that they're working with. It's a lot more of the soft skills because they can't hide behind fancy gyms or all of this tech because sometimes the money is not even there. Um, And when it is there, it's pretty easy to see through those programs and and realize that the coach may, in fact, be hiding behind some of that and hasn't necessarily engaged with his population and his compliance numbers might be down or whatever metric you want to look at. Um, But I do think it's interesting, especially as we look at apps and we look at wearables and we look at software, there is probably a future that we're headed towards where if coaches can't exist alongside some sort of tech that is providing them with information that they can action on, then they will ultimately get replaced by something that comes up with some workout that comes from your watch because you took this many steps. I think it's just inevitable that general pop goes in that direction because it's a lot easier to buy a Fitbit than it is to commit to going outside and running three days a week to Alex's point about K through 12. That's as far as I'll go on that soapbox, but it's definitely something
2: that we're acutely aware of. I was surprised that Drew didn't start cheering when casein said first principles. Cause Drew, was I honest. did in
1: my head. I just didn't want to
2: audibly do it because it makes editing hard
1: afterwards. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. But we've kept you guys I, forever. I mean, we'll, we'll work towards a close here. One, one thing I would be interested in having you guys talk through is having conducted these studies and ultimately, like we said at the beginning, come to the conclusion that it's about as good as a coin flip when the intent is to, we won't say predict injury, but when the intent is to get ahead of injury or at least provide practitioners with good decision-making tools, what did you take away from this that you might turn around and say, hey, if you do these things, you're probably making a better decision than if you just simply action on what's on the screen?
3: Well, from, I'll go first, just that, you know, when we looked at our data, you know, we were, um, you know, we were able to identify a lot of things that contribute to injury risk in our in our population. And then I think the other thing we did is just like I mentioned that, you know, Van Meshelen model where, you know, you first get a really good solid idea of what the type, the the you know, just the descriptive epidemiology of the, your injury profile within your population. So I think we learned a lot about our population in, in doing these studies, you know, the kinds of injuries that folks get. And then, you know, things that are associated with it, you know, it seems like you know for us that's kind of different you know folks um candidates with the lower bmi seem to be at a little bit of an increased um risk for injury um you know folks that uh do sit ups at a poor rate tend to be at an increased risk folks that run faster seem to be protected from injury all those things i think can help but you know the biggest thing with with us that is this isn't sexy at all but it's true with with um, almost every population you look at it, it's prior injury. You know, if you've had a prior injury, you know, when you look at these odds ratios, it's, you know, two for any musculoskeletal injury an odds ratio, of you know, just over three for um, putting you at risk for a lower extremity injury. So, you know, um, you know, that gets to really screening your population and making sure that the, um, that these folks that have had prior injury, that they fully recovered and that you've done everything to rehabilitate their injuries. And, you know, that takes human capital and, um, it's not something that you can necessarily just um, administer en masse, but um, I think it's I think it's worth it, you know. Um, and I think it's that kind of like detailed, hard work that's um, is um, going to be But what, what makes real differences?
0: Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, and and there's some value to going back to basics. Clearly, <laughs> uh, you know, looking at the fundamentals of something and uh, looking at the classic tests that have been done looking at the medical histories of these individuals that'll tell us you know um, you know one a day might come you know in the foreseeable future where machine learning and AI might actually help predict injury risk when coupled with the human factors and so on we're not there yet but we might well get there I'm not going to discount it completely sure but um, but I think you know, The most important lesson to really take away from all of this is that, you know, when you're thinking about complex issues, just remember you need to do it carefully, systematically, deliberately. And when you don't do that is when you run into issues with uh, your product or your endpoint. And you can use the best tools in the business in terms of machine learning and AI, but if the inputs into your model don't make sense, then the model is not going to make sense
1: yeah i think that makes a lot of sense well thank you guys first of all i mean this was a huge amount of work that you guys did with both of these studies massive sample sizes long duration so thank you for doing that work and then thank you for coming on and talking to us about it Um, we appreciate
3: it yes thanks for having us on your pleasure yeah Yeah, thanks for having having us great